we are essentially existing within two bodies. And these two bodies are seamlessly interconnected, but one is our physical body and the other is what's known as our astral body or in scientific terms, one is a body made of atoms and molecules and the other is a body made of pure energy. Hello and welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our guest is Joseph Selby. Do you live with one foot in heaven? If we are one with God in our divine self, why don't we know it? Joseph Selby explores the physics of God and the dynamic relationship of our dual existence between our local physical body and our non-local energy body and offers insights on how to achieve life-changing, extraordinary states of superconscious awareness. He is the author of Break Through the Limits of the Brain. Joseph Selby, welcome to Passion Harvest. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I absolutely, I've just finished your book. I absolutely love it. Break Through the Limits of the Brain. And I've got so, I've got too many questions for you, but I'd love to start with, I just love how you talk about, we have one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. What does that mean? Well, that I think is one of the more profound things that spiritual teachings and scientific teachings tell us that we are essentially existing within two bodies and these two bodies are seamlessly interconnected but one is our physical body and the other is what's known as our astral body or in scientific terms one is a body made of atoms and molecules and the other is a body made of pure energy and in scientific terms the <clears throat> physical body is local and the um, energy body is non-local and this may if it's your first introduction to this concept this may seem um, pretty strange that we would have these two bodies at once so to speak but According to science, if we did not have the non-local, pure energy sort of a counterpart to our uh, physical body made of atoms and molecules, it, the physical body couldn't exist. It depends on this foundation of energy. And this is echoed in spiritual teachings that what is often called the, um, the astral body or the energy body or subtle body is the foundation for the physical body in spiritual teachings as well. So this is one of the, uh, for me, very pleasing, one of the great intersections of physics, science in general, and spiritual teachings. I just wanted to read this quote from the book and it 
kind of answers my questions. Most of us by late childhood have unintentionally rendered ourselves neutrally blind to everything except what the senses reveal, the physical. So why, why do we detach ourselves from our divine self? It's a great question. And it's really the heart of the book, um, Break Through the Limits of the Brain. Our brain is um, a good friend and a good enemy. It can be helpful to us and it can be detrimental to us because the brain is a sense, in a sense, neutral to whatever we want to use it for. So we can use the brain and by using it, I mean, we can program it to do certain things uh, more easily for us than if we had no uh, neural support. So this starts when we're tiny, it starts in the womb. It starts when we first try to use our physical bodies when we're infants and we struggle when we're infants to use the physical body. We don't have the uh, neural sets. We don't have the neural programming in place that makes moving hands, arms, feet, walking, talking easier. But every time we do something, and if we do it several times, some studies indicate it can be as few as five or six times, the brain will create um, a network of neurons that make that action easier. And so we don't have to concentrate on moving our hand or moving our arm. Certainly as adults, we don't even think about it. But as a child, that was a big deal, right? Just being able to get your hand to grab that ball and grasp that ball, that was triumph because you didn't have the neural programming in place that would just uh, enable you to do that easily and without thought. Um, but that became the foundation for us to create literally millions of neural circuits, neural networks that support everything from actions, physical movements, to emotional response, to uh, triggering thoughts. All of that complexity is in our brain. And it's not that the thoughts are in the brain or that the emotions are in the brain, but by creating a neural net, a neural circuit in your uh, brain, you can make accessing that emotion uh, a habit. You can make accessing those thoughts a habit. And this also is true of perception. So we perceive the world now that we're adults as a you know collection of physical objects. And it is obvious to us because our senses are bringing that into the brain and then the brain is interpreting what they are. And 
part of that interpretation is what we call the mind's eye view that we have a picture of reality that is created for us by the brain. And as we get older, the mind's eye view becomes better, clearer, but it also becomes firmer. Uh, it becomes more um, sort of absolute what we experience because we've simultaneously with firming up our our mind's eye view and all these other things I've been talking about by creating neural circuits, we make our response to the world around us more and more habitual and stronger and stronger to the point where as most of us as adults, when we gaze through the senses at the world around us, we see the world of the mind's eye view and nothing else. But this wasn't necessarily true when we were infants or even toddlers. There are many, many stories about young children seeing angels, of young children seeing auras of light around people, of young children seeing other people. A lot of psychic children um, don't realize that what they're seeing is not what their adult parents are seeing until they're, you know, far older. But in their um, young childhood, they see other other people within that same world that most of us normally see nothing but the background of, of the physical world. So this ability that we have that is there when we're children, not all of us exercise that ability. I have no memories of, you know, seeing other people or seeing auras around people or seeing angels. But we all have that ability to do that. We just so much crowded out. And that's what I mean by we tend to make ourselves neurally blind to those more subtle realities by creating more and more neural circuits that automatically um, draw us into habits of perception, of thought, of emotion, and of course, of you know, physical uh, ability. There's nothing permanent about that. If we decide we want to perceive more subtly, if we want to perceive subtle spiritual realities, if we want to perceive our subtle body, we can do so. But we'll be fighting at this point against all this other neural linkages that we've created that tend to pull us away from that kind of perception. So we have to rebuild our perception. It's possible, it's just more difficult when we get older. With our, When we're children, it's more natural. Gosh, um, and and this is also about rewiring the you know the the, the subconscious super potential. But we take our 
our, our local body, our humanness, the reality of what we perceive so seriously, as you mentioned, thoughts, emotions, memories, and habits. It's, it's challenging and the suffering in our humanness can be so real and so overwhelming. What's your advice to move through this? Well, the number one advice I offer to anyone and everyone who will listen <laughs> um, is to develop a practice of meditation in your life. So people have many different reactions to meditation and it can be practiced in many forms and in many ways, but the, the core of it is that by becoming mentally and physically still, or as still as you can, you begin to perceive things that are not being offered up to you by your habitual neural circuits. Neural circuits respond to action. They respond to us initiating things of, of moving forward in our life in a way that, you know, is very familiar to all of us. And as long as we are doing that, all these circuits are just going to keep firing and they're going to keep providing us the experiences that they've, they have been and, ha and that we trained them to do. So we need to step back from that to experience spirit, to experience inner peace, to experience mental tranquility. And the single most direct way to step back from that is to literally learn to sit still. And by sitting still, you'll find that your mind also begins to still. It's just, it's automatic because your mind has been stimulated by physical movements and actions. When you uh, quiet that part of your normal life, you'll find that habitual thoughts, emotions begin to subside and you do start to perceive subtler aspects of yourself. And this in and of itself might seem like a, um, you know, a parlor trick. Okay, now I'm perceiving things that I don't normally perceive. But the key is those things are wonderful. They make your day. That feeling of well-being, of peace, of joy that comes when you start to connect to your inner self, you start to connect to um, inner spirit, is just moving transforming, life-changing. But unless you initiate it, it isn't an experience you're likely to have. You have to deliberately create new circuits that support that. But they will, in the same way that your brain created circuits to support the ability to walk, if you take up a practice of meditation, the brain will create circuits that support the practice of meditation. In other words, uh, when you're first beginning to meditate, you will almost always, everybody I've 
talked to almost always says they find it difficult to sit still because we've become used to just moving all the time. And if you stick with your practice of meditation for even a short period of time, the brain will create circuits that make you still, that cease the motion, that stop the habitual, um, you know, uh, reactions in your muscles to, to, to move and you will slow down. And the more you meditate, the more circuits you build that support meditation and the more circuits you build that support meditation, the more you begin to directly experience those subtle realities that might've been more accessible to you when you were a child. It's almost a bit like rebooting the computer. Um, (laughs) Yeah, definitely. This is, I mean, I, I was, I, spoke about well I thought about tools and tips for achieving our superconscious potential and meditation in your with your research and your opinion is the key to do this or stilling the mind yes because it is the um experientially most drawing of anything you can do um you know deep prayer inspirational chanting um getting out in nature and being still in nature and embracing uh the beauty of nature these are all also wonderful things to do and you know there are thousands of variations on those things and it, if you do any of those repeatedly you will build circuits that support that kind of experience and draw you to that kind of experience when you're in the right environment but meditation is the most focused and concentrated. It is the the one practice that um, transforms your neural circuits most rapidly, that most rapidly rewires your brain for that kind of behavior, which will then make focused prayer, chanting, being out in nature even better, even more fulfilling, because they're supported by this ability to become still and sort of withdraw from the the firework show of experience that is mostly what we we tend to experience on a day-to-day basis. So they all go together, but I recommend always meditation first, because it is the most effective and unless people have a really hard time with it, which is possible, it's also one of the most immediately uh, pleasing inner experiences that uh, I know of and that people tell me it it has been so for them as well. You spoke before about habits. People have habits that they probably may or may not like or emotions or thoughts repetitive thoughts or memories that they aren't pleasing is is meditation also a way to move rewire the brain and move through this yes uh, with one caveat it's an important caveat meditation doesn't rewire the brain by rewiring 
the, all the circuits you've already created. Once you've created a neural circuit that supports any kind of habit, whether mental, emotional, or physical, it's there. It's it's fixed in your brain. Uh, it's just like you know cells in your body. But unless you create new circuits, those will run your life. And habits can be good, habits can be bad. Uh, if you can have habits that are um, very helpful to your health, you know, habits of good eating, exercise, et cetera, you can have good habits of mental efficiency and um, your, your emotional life can be positive. All these things um, can be good and be supported by the neural circuits that formed as you did those more and more often. But if you have negative habits, and most of us have some, right? There, there are ones that we wish we didn't have. We find it difficult to let go of them because they're sort of poised and ready for us when a particular thought makes us interested in that habit when something we read or see uh, triggers that habit. That habit has real power over us. It, it takes us into behaviors that we don't necessarily want. And those kind of habits are the ones that tend to fight against new habits of meditation, of going within. And yet meditation is not going to uh, eliminate those habits for us. But what meditation does do, what spiritual practices and spiritual perception, um, you know, spending time in your mind with uh, spiritual thoughts, with metaphysics, with the whole world of spiritual perception is that it gradually builds circuits that are stronger than the negative circuits. So it isn't the negative circuit that immediately grabs you, <laughs> you know, when you get up in the morning or when you, um, something happens during your day that normally would draw you into that negative habit. Instead, you get drawn into more positive habits. So it's really a matter of rewiring the brain and then strengthening those circuits that you have rewired to be the first ones you're drawn to, to be the ones that have the most uh, attraction to you and that automatically trigger when certain things happen in your life. So, so let me be a more more specific. So um, if you're trying to establish a habit of, of meditation or of positive thoughts, and yet the first thing that happens when you get up is, is an older habit takes a hold of you. And that older habit has you reading the news, reading about politics, and 
as you read the news and read about politics, it triggers emotions of maybe outrage, maybe anger, maybe um, fear, maybe not feeling safe. And that is the foundation of your day, if you will, right? That's, you've started your day by awakening some of the more negative emotions that you can have. Whereas if you meditate, you have the opportunity to awaken the opposite kinds of meditations, where you feel calm, you feel safe, you feel that all's right with the world. It's a, it's a big, giant, cosmic motion picture of which I am a part, but it is not me. I am not it. I don't have to feel bad because the world has problems. I can feel good within myself. So those two choices are with us all the time is that we can choose to awaken and feel and experience more positive things, or we can allow old habits to draw us back into negative feelings. So it's always, always our choice. The choice is always easier to make when we've developed stronger neural circuits that support the positive choices. And those we have to build, we have to work at we have to be deliberate about what we want to experience, what we want to uh, support uh, in our day-to-day -day life. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask you, so the, the, the physical body and the energetic body or and then the, the soul or the higher self, who, who, what, who, what are we in essence aside from our physical body? Well, the... Uh, I can't tell you this necessarily because I have fully experienced it. I have experienced it to some degree through meditation, but overwhelmingly what spiritual teachers in traditions that I call uh, experiential spirituality, yoga, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, um, and many others, charismatic Christianity, there's, there's many, many experiential traditions woven within the world of what we think of as religion. And the teachers, the saints, the sages that uh, are within those traditions universally say that the soul is spirit, the soul is God, and that God is the soul, that they're inextricably connected. But because we have free will, we can decide to wander off and experience anything we want. Now you might ask why, if we <laughs> are the bliss of God, the peace yeah. of God, why would we ever wander off? <laughs> and that is uh, you know, perhaps a longer a longer story, but suffice it to say we we do. And yet, when we decide to turn back to uh, becoming aware of spirit again, of being aware of spirit again habitually, that is a choice we can make. And when we dive into it, if you read the lives of saints and sages, or you read what 
near-death experiencers often have in their near-death experience is that it's just blissful to go into the divine. And that whenever we make that connection, whenever in this life we make that connection, we can we can turn back to that and then know in a in an experiential way, not in the mind, that we are spirit, that our soul, the, the essence of who we are, is that bliss. Yogananda, um, author of the autobiography of a yogi, and was my spiritual teacher, described God as ever new joy. And that the soul is that ever new joy. And we can return to it. So I guess my next question is, but so why are we having this human experience? Why? What, was, what is the purpose of it all? That is a great question with uh, maybe dozens of answers. I don't know. But logically, people have difficulty with this question, which is, if we are divine beings, and if God is a loving God, why would he or she or our friend God put us in a situation where we no longer know our own identity? And that in that time, when we no longer know our own identity, we suffer, we make mistakes, we look for happiness, look for love in the wrong places. We try to seek satisfaction by uh, perhaps owning things or controlling things. We try to seek love by trying to control other people. Uh, we make mistake after mistake of seeking that satisfaction, seeking love, seeking joy outside of ourselves. We, we try to get it from someone else or we try to get it from something else. And it doesn't work, but we, we keep, you know, we think, oh, that didn't work because I didn't do it right. You know, that last relationship didn't make me happy because I did X, Y, and Z. So my next relationship, I'm going to do it differently, but I probably make the still the same fundamental mistake, which is I'm hoping that person is in some way going to make me happy, that that's some, that person is in some way going to love me, and then I will always feel love. And this is what's often called, you know, the, the lessons of life, the the um, sometimes challenging, difficult things that we have to go through to finally become convinced that the answers lie within, that the real love we're seeking, the real joy we're seeking, the happiness we're seeking is and always has been inside, that, that 
we are love, we are joy, but it's been not God or spirit setting us up for this so much as it is God giving us free will. And we make those choices to seek for happiness in all the wrong places. And that it's only by finally making the choice from our own free will to go within that that has real power for us. If we're just told that that's what we should do, we don't tend to do it. We don't tend to, you know, take it seriously. But when we experience the pain of not doing it, and then we experience the bliss of doing it, it has real power to change our life. I've often wished that's not the way things were. <laughs> I wished uh, many a time that it would be easier to experience that depth of divine bliss. But I've become more and more convinced in my life in just practical terms that going within, in fact, does give me the greatest happiness. It does give me what I'm really looking for. And that has convinced me of that power and has convinced me to the extent that that's what I really seek most deeply all the time. I still live, you know, a life that pretty much anyone would recognize as a normal life. You know, I'm an author, I write, I have to uh, make money, I pay bills, I, I do all the things that you would expect a normal person to do. But now I do it not because those things are going to make me happy, but that there are opportunities for me to be of service to others, to give, uh, to take care of my wife and family. But they're not, I don't have any expectation that those things in and of themselves are going to make me happy. I don't need them to make me happy. Uh, they can be wonderful and and often are. And I think in many ways, things become more wonderful when you don't have any attachment to them, when you don't need them to make you happy or you don't need them to be in a certain way in order for it to fit your life plan. When you can just be at peace with it all, give to it all, then both come together. Your life supports your spiritual life. Your spiritual life supports your life. And your experience just deepens and, and gets richer and richer as time goes by. So true. It is a hard one, though. I mean, I get this question asked all the time. How do I love myself? We, the majority of people, as you said, look outside for happiness. Sometimes I do as well. Or... But you just kind of answered it. How does one learn to love themselves? Well, I think that I often have a hard time with that concept of that you need to love yourself. Unless I define it in a certain way, which is that you do need to recognize 
that you are love. You do need to recognize maybe more deeply that you are loved, but not necessarily by other people, but by spirit. That because you are love, and God is love, spirit is love, when you make that connection, you can have an overwhelming feeling that you are loved and that you are love. So if that is what it means to love yourself, then by all means, I think everyone should pursue that. But if, and this is why I often have difficulty with this concept, if you're thinking that loving yourself exactly the way you are with all the faults that you have is going to bring you the kind of satisfaction that you hope for, I'm not sure it will because those faults are still there. Those faults are what are making you unhappy. So loving them, I think, could be at best, like again, from my point of view, just accepting that you have those issues and that by accepting that you have those issues, you can do something about them. You can create their, their opposite antidote by creating new ways of thinking and feeling and building up those neural circuits that support those. Um, but those faults are never going to make you happy despite there being faults. And it's kind of a hard truth, but I think a starting point can be and should be knowing that you have the potential to be everything you need to be. You have the potential to be love, to be joy, to be peace, and that you're not permanently broken. You're not permanently made in such a way, whether, you know, a lot of people think of their DNA as their destiny or their um, young emotional life as a, a, a irreversible imprint that they'll never get away from in this life or mental abilities they have or don't have are uh, fixed. I don't believe any of those things are true. I believe that we have the potential to become anything and everything we could possibly want to be. And perhaps that begins with loving yourself, but I think that is only the starting point to actually experiencing that. You spoke about fixed and potential. We can often get so fixed on the life, even if whether we're happy or not happy, that this is it. There's no, there's no way out. There's no other possibilities. Um, but what you're talking about is anything really is possible and we have the potential to be or to do or to change anything. Yes. I mean, a lot of people talk about, well, how can I possibly have free will mm -hmm. if 
I'm in this life circumstance, which is, and generally they're asking this question because they're not happy. They're maybe even miserable. Maybe it's just a terrible life. And my heart goes out to people who are trapped in difficult lives because there are many people who are. And so when you say to them or they hear that they have free will, um, they might even just get angry at you because it seems monstrously inaccurate, monstrously, monstrously impossible that they could get away from their circumstances. And, and I know it's hard. And as I say, my heart goes out to people in those kind of situations. But nonetheless, anyone has the free will to make their next choice. And it's their next choice that is going to lead to the choice thereafter and the choice thereafter and so forth that will take you to happiness. That first choice can be really hard to do. It's not a matter of wishful thinking, but you can actually choose, I want out of this situation I'm in. I want out of this life and I'm going to get out. And what that could mean in terms of a specific choice could be thousands of things, millions of things. But everyone does have that power of free will to make their next choice. Thank you, Joseph. I've got one more question for you. Well, maybe it's a big one. You speak about the holographic principle in relation to is this like, what is reality? Are we living a dream? Do you mind just exploring that a little bit for the audience and for me? Sure. That's one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> me too. <laughs> So uh, your first question was about us having uh, two bodies. And what did I mean by that? And why was one with a foot in heaven and the other with a foot on earth? The holographic principle that comes to us through M theory, which is one of the sort of disciplines of physics on the frontier of discovery of the nature of reality, has put forward as a kind of a core axiom of the way reality works is that the information that creates our physical universe and the information is, you know, maybe it sounds like a vast understatement. It's all the information that determines what every atom and molecule in the entire universe, every wave of energy, of electromagnetic energy in the physical universe is determined by this holographic information. And that this holographic information in combination with the pure energy of this realm, this non-local realm, where our uh, 
holographic body, our astral body exists, combine to holographically project the entire physical universe. Now, oftentimes people run into this concept having no idea that it actually comes from the heart of physics, that it is not just kind of a speculation that, uh, I don't know, a science fiction writer would come up with. It's actually um, at the heart of the way some disciplines, not all disciplines on the frontiers of physics, think all, all of reality is formed, that it is central to the fact that we have a physical universe at all. So the holographic principle also connects to us each individually, not just abstraction of a, 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 the entire physical universe, in that our, our one foot in heaven, our subtle spiritual astral body that is pure energy, is the hologram or our physical body and that we wouldn't have a physical body if we didn't have the subtle astral body and this is important to us obviously it's important to this to us in the sense that if it didn't exist we would not exist either but it is important to understanding how we um progress spiritually progress towards happiness, towards greater peace and well-being because the more we connect to that subtle energy body that is holographically projecting or in a real way determining every atom and molecule in our physical body, the more we create a physical body that's healthy, the more we create a um, experience in the physical world that is positive. And the more we, the more we center our reality in our subtler self, in our spirit, the more the physical world that we live in and all the things that we need to do in the physical world are 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 blessed they're improved they're um made clearer better more successful uh, our health improves all of this goes automatically with making that deeper connection to our hologram body our hologram self Thank you for explaining that so simply. I mean, it's such a complicated subject, but that was that was great. Thank you so much, Joseph. A big congratulations on your book. Now, where's the best place for people to connect with you? And I will leave a link below in the show notes as well. Well, a good starting point and the simplest to remember probably is uh, you can go to my website, which is uh, reachable at josephselby.com. And for those of you who are just listening to this and not seeing anything, 
uh, I always like to point out that the spelling of my last name is somewhat unusual. So most of the time, if you run into the last name Selby, mm -hmm. you will assume it ends in a Y, but mine ends in an IE. So it's S-E-L-B-I-E. And go to that site, josephselby.com. You will learn about my other books. There are many articles you can read. Uh, there are uh, courses that you can take if you want to go deeper into uh, many of the things that we were talking about here. If you want to get in contact with me, there are ways to do it. Uh, and there are first chapters of my books. If you'd like to have a you know deeper taste be, be, before you head off to purchase it. Uh, but all of that you can uh, find in that website. Thank you, Joseph. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you today on a final note? Wow, we've covered a lot of ground. I don't know if there is anything. Okay. Um, <laughs> I would just reiterate, meditate. If there's nothing else you take away from anything that I said, try to meditate. Try to make all of this stuff that right now might seem like a lot of words that are interesting or confusing. The way to make them be of value in your life is to take the time to have inner experience of the things that we've been talking about. And that is where the real difference is made. Joseph Selby, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Um, wonderful way to end the show. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Louisa. Bye. If you liked this episode, please do subscribe.